Welcome to the second season of CEBC MENA podcast, the future mobility season that covers various topics that support the transition towards sustainable, equitable, and resilient mobility system. My name is Dana Darwish, your CEBC MENA host. For today's episode, we will plunge into the topic of alternative fuels and powertrains for a comparative assessment between the USA and MENA. The episode will predominantly focus on advanced vehicle technologies to observe the different regional perceptions and opportunities, regional barriers for adoption, their relation to better environmental impact and emission reductions, and roles of private and public stakeholders to promote these alternatives and sustainable technologies. We are very pleased to have two experts with extensive knowledge and experience for today's topic. Dr. Rubal Doa, Research Fellow at King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, CAPSARC, and Randall Field, Executive Director of the Mobility Systems Center at MIT Energy Initiative. Not to let you all wait any longer, let us begin this interesting discussion. There is a wide range of vehicle alternatives, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, hybrid, plug-in hybrid, electric, biofuel-powered, hydrogen, and even solar. And while some of these are commercially available globally, the adoption preference varies from one place or one region to another and from one specific society to another. Rubal, can you please walk us through this work you do at CAPSARC within this area and what's currently happening in MENA and that space? Which technologies are currently available and which technology would you say is or would and should be the regional mainstream from both environmental and economical points of view? Sure. Uh, thank you, Dana, and thank you, CEBC, for this opportunity to participate in this uh, podcast. I'm really excited about it, um, about me and the work we do at CAPSAC. Um, just a little bit about CAPSAC first. Uh, CAPSAC is uh, a research uh, center located in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and we focus on um, energy economics and energy policy issues. Um, in particular, my research at CAPSAC focuses on the policy issues pertaining to the light-duty vehicle sector. So we look at various supply and demand-side policies uh, for promoting uh, energy efficiency within the light-duty vehicle sector. Uh, in terms of the various technologies that are currently available within Saudi Arabia and the MENA region, um, they are mainly dominated by the traditional internal combustion engine vehicles, um, the hybrid technology was introduced a uh, few years ago in Saudi Arabia and um, in Dubai and UAE, broadly speaking, uh, even electric vehicles, uh, both plug-in hybrid and pure battery electric vehicles have already been introduced. Uh, Saudi Arabia is currently preparing the standards to allow for easier import of plug-in electric vehicles, as well as standards for establishing the charging infrastructure within the kingdom. Excellent. Now we have that interesting MENA perspective. Let's fly to the USA. Randall, how is it going at your end? How is that space there? Please tell us about the work you do at the Mobility Systems Center and the MIT Energy Initiative working with these alternatives, fuels, and new energy vehicles. So at the MIT Energy Initiative, uh, our research is focused on how, how do we go about uh, supplying energy to the world uh, given that the world is a growing demand for energy over the decades ahead, 
and do so with a lower carbon footprint. Uh, so the work that we're doing at the Mobility System Center is directly related to that. How do we provide a growing demand for mobility throughout the world and do so with a reduced CO2 footprint? And uh, in, this, in this research, we look at alternative powertrains and alternative fuels. And when it comes to light duty vehicles, um, electrification is of course one of the uh, important paths forward. And, and there are of course hybridization, plug-in hybrids, and fully electric battery electric vehicles. And uh, each of these uh, has a, a role to play in decreasing the carbon footprint of transportation. And uh, we look at all different aspects of that, not only the life cycle emissions, including the supply of the energy, but also uh, the, uh, the questions of how do people make decisions about vehicle purchase and the role of government policy. Because as you mentioned, throughout the world, different countries have different uh, interests in these different alternative fuels in vehicles. And a lot of that has to do with government policies because uh, the policy perspective is absolutely essential in the kickstart of some of these new technologies. Randall, how do you see the impact of these new technologies, specifically in the battery technology, where cost has been declining over the past few years and the capacity has been increasing, on the sales of new energy vehicles and the adoption rates? Yes. First of all, these technologies have come a long ways. If you look at over the past 10 years, things have changed tremendously in, in this regard. So looking at electric vehicles, first of all, the cost of these vehicles has dropped precipitously over the last 10 years. Uh, and, and, and the driving force there is, of course, the battery technology. 10 years ago, a cost of batteries was well over $1,000 per kilowatt hour. And today, the price of these batteries is, uh, is approaching $100 per kilowatt hour. Uh, so that has been a huge driver in the change in adoption and affordability of these. However, uh, a, a battery electric vehicle still costs more than an internal combustion engine vehicle of the same characteristics. Uh, so that's, that's one barrier. But, but the, really, the biggest barrier to adoption is uh, what we've referred to as range anxiety and charging availability. Uh, range anxiety is the fact that a battery electric vehicle does not have the range of a typical gasoline-powered vehicle. So things have improved tremendously, and the range of, a, of many models of battery electric vehicles is now uh, over three, 300 kilometers, uh, which is great, but not as good as an internal combustion engine vehicle. But the other fact is that uh, uh, people in different parts of the world uh, uh, have different levels of access to a parking spot and, for that matter, to the ability to charge when they go home at night. So if you look at city dwellers, you know, the ability to charge at night uh, depends on where you park your car and how you park your car. And, and uh, it's a very different situation for city dwellers living in multi-unit dwellings versus a suburban liver, uh, a suburban a dweller who has a uh, driveway, maybe a garage, and easy access to charging overnight. So that has a tremendous impact on people's adoption rate in these two situations. Uh, you know, if you happen to be at a household in the suburbs, two cars, one of those cars could be electric, and uh, you know the issue of range anxiety doesn't get in the way. But if you're if you're a urban dweller and you don't know how you're going to charge, that can be an issue.
And uh, so what we find is that people who already own a battery electric vehicle become comfortable with this situation quickly, but people who don't have the experience are less so. What do you think, Rubal, about this? How do you see the impact of these new technologies on the adoption rates in the MENA region? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you framed it very appropriately. It's a lot about it. A lot of it is about perception. Um, it may or may not actually be true, but if things are perceived differently by customers, then it affects uh, adoption a lot. Um, so comparing uh, hydrogen fuels electric vehicles versus pure battery electric vehicles, um, there are a few plus points and minus points for both. Uh, battery electric vehicles, uh, you know, the... Uh, the charging infrastructure can, in principle, be easily deployed because it's all electricity-based, whereas for hydrogen uh, fuels electric vehicles, you need uh, the refueling infrastructure, which can be an issue, especially considering hydrogen. The plus point for hydrogen fuels electric vehicles is their range and their refueling time, uh, so they can drive a lot uh, further compared to a battery electric vehicle. Uh, and they can be refueled a lot quickly, you know, almost in five minutes, like a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle. Whereas battery electric vehicles, uh, even with fast charging, takes about 30 minutes. Um, but then at the end of the day, uh, consumers are more often than not technology agnostic. They're technology neutral. They don't care so much about the powertrain as such, what they care about is uh, performance, what they care about is safety, uh, reliability, uh, and sometimes, you know, operating costs. And in that sense, um, you know, it takes time, um, especially for reliability to be established. Uh, it, it does take time for consumers to become comfortable with a certain technology, uh, especially the safety and reliability aspects of it. And at the top of it is usually the, the price concerns, uh, both the upfront uh, price as well as the operating costs. And so uh, both uh, battery electric vehicle and hydrogen fuels electric vehicles um, have a higher upfront cost at this point of time compared to traditional internal combustion engine vehicles. The advantage with battery electric vehicles is that their operating cost is a lot lower because electricity is cheap, is relatively cheaper compared to uh, gasoline and diesel fuels. Uh, for hydrogen fuels electric vehicle, it's still not an advantage yet, despite you know higher fuel economy of hydrogen fuels electric vehicles, because the hydrogen uh, fuel is still costly. Um, so, in the coming few years, uh, you know things will evolve. Um, costs will most likely go down with economies of scale in the manufacturing side as well as through learning by doing. Um, and, and same goes for the fuels. Um, it is expected that the hydrogen fuel costs would go down and with it, the operating cost for hydrogen fuels electric vehicles. Um, within the MENA region, uh, there is this uh, peculiar case that because we have you know, warmer climates, we have higher temperatures and batteries uh, are known to degrade faster um, at higher temperatures. Um, so there's this, you know, one uh, limitation with battery electric vehicles, especially for the MENA region, but it's not something that, you know, cannot be, uh, cannot be addressed through appropriate technological interventions, uh, perhaps through cooling. And so 
you know, technology, technological problems can usually be addressed. Uh, it's the economics part of it that uh, takes a bit of time. Moreover, the um, uh, getting the consumers comfortable uh, with the reliability as well as safety aspects, that usually takes time. What do you think are the most important factors affecting the adoption rates of these new energy vehicles, and especially the battery electric vehicles, Randall? In, in terms of the, you know, the uh, adoption rate and uh, uptake, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a whole learning process out there for consumers in making these decisions. And uh, fortunately, it, it is a um, virtuous circle. Uh, where, you know, as more people have these electric vehicles and there's more exposure and uh, maybe the uh, Uber and Lyft drivers have electric vehicles and, and you get more and more exposure to these, uh, these alternative fuel vehicles, people learn and uh, hear about the merits and uh, they experience, you know, some of the characteristics of some of these cars, which have some good acceleration, have quietness. Um, and, and so forth, and they get the exposure and see how it's charged and so forth, and uh, then that becomes an acceleration of the adoption of these things. But of course, you have to have that build out of the recharging infrastructure or fueling infrastructure to make that circle work. Um, it, it's really that cycle of, of adoption. And when it comes to, um, you know, the, sort of the smaller the, the uh, vehicle, whether it's a scooter or or other other thing, it's it's a bit easier to electrify. Um, whereas if it's a heavy duty, longer range, then it's more difficult to electrify. And we can't lose sight of the beauty of the um, hybridization because hybridization itself gives you a great deal of of efficiency. And uh, keep in mind that at the moment there are parts of the world where it's more environmentally friendly to in terms of CO2 to have a hybrid vehicle versus a battery electric vehicle if, if the local electricity is being made by, uh, by burning coal, for example, you're better off, uh, of course, with a hybrid, hybrid uh, vehicle. And, um, and that, of course, will change. You know, as, 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 we go, if you, as you look at the life of, of any vehicle, uh, you know, a light-duty vehicle, typically 14 years, a truck it can be even longer. Uh, that over the life of that vehicle, the uh, electricity supply will decarbonize through a number of actions that are going on uh, throughout the world at this time. Um, but as you go to heavier duty vehicles, then uh, you have alternatives such as the hydrogen fueling, which gives you uh, some, some great options. And the trick there is, again, the chicken and egg. If you're going to have a a uh, fleet of trucks that uh, are going to be powered by hydrogen, somebody's got to take the initiative to build out the infrastructure for enough fueling stations to allow the, the trucking fleet to, to build out. So it's, it's a very tricky chick, chicken and egg problem because you've got the manual, the OEMs have to build the vehicles, somebody's got to buy and run the vehicles, and somebody else has got to have the uh, uh, infrastructure for, for refueling those hydrogen vehicles. So it is a complex thing that really needs to be uh, involved government agencies as well as the OEMs and the uh, uh, trucking fleet owners all working together to agree upon a plan. Rubal, what do you think are the most important technological innovations that OEMs need to focus on to accelerate adoption and meet the customer's expectations? 
Sure. Uh, so when it comes to technological innovation, um, a big component of it is how much of it is you know, passed on to the consumer uh, in terms of uh, things that they care about. Um, so one thing that is very much in favor of electric vehicles is their high performance or high acceleration, you know, uh, zero to 60 in, in less than two seconds. And a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of consumers, uh, especially younger consumers, uh, care a lot about high performance, uh, you know, the, the thrill that you can get from <laughs> accelerating so fast. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, they don't, the, the automakers don't need to worry much about uh, passing on improvements in technology for improving the acceleration. It's already a big plus for battery electric vehicles. Uh, what they do need to pass on are uh, reductions in upfront price as well as um, the uh, uh, improvements in the perception of uh, safety and reliability. Um, so when it comes to upfront price, uh, it, it just so happens that uh, until now, uh, while the costs of batteries have declined precipitously, uh, have declined a lot over the last 10 years, those have not translated into upfront price reduction. This is because automakers are, um, transferring those price reductions to increasing the size of the battery to increase the driving range. Um, so, for example, if you look at the price of Nissan Leaf in the US, it has actually not fallen over the last 10 years. Uh, and it's mainly because most of the uh, price reductions have been translated into uh, putting bigger uh, size batteries in the vehicle to improve its driving range. So, uh, so hopefully in the near future, uh, once you know the uh, new battery chemistries uh, come on the market, and once uh, through economies of scale and learning by doing uh, the price uh, reductions, uh, the, the the battery price uh, cost reductions can be uh, transferred uh, or translated into uh, upfront price reductions for the for the vehicle because that is what the consumers uh, care about, especially uh, the cost-conscious consumers. Um, and uh, the other uh, part of technology innovation that needs uh, to be, uh, that needs to happen is the increase in the driving range. Um, and uh, going back to the question uh, from the point of view of the automaker, the selling of these alternative fuel vehicles, and a lot of it you know, comes down to profitability. Um, you know, for a private uh, manufacturer or for a private player, uh, it all boils down, the bottom line is profitability. And it just so happens that at this point of time, internal combustion engine vehicles are more profitable compared to uh, plug-in electric vehicles. So without any uh, uh, policy push, um, automakers would, uh, you know, like any private player uh, or investor, would want to uh, maximize their profitability and sell the vehicles that ensure higher profitability. For plug-in electric vehicles, you know, the the um, profit margins still may not be that high, uh, especially because you know the the, uh, the 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 cost of the battery is is still high. Um, so, without you know, absent any policy push, automakers are not likely to give signals to their you know um, sales teams to uh, encourage consumers to adopt uh, plug-in electric vehicles. 
so, so there is a need, at least in the current times, uh, for policy levers to be put in place as well to, to, to level the playing field, uh, so to speak. Thank you, Rubal. So from my understanding, I see that there are barriers present in both the USA and MENA, common and different ones as well. Because for all the enthusiasm for alternative vehicles and the news that we've noticed, actual progress in the market is still taking some time to emerge. What can be done here, policy-wise and implementation-wise, to tackle these challenges? Maybe we can start with you, Randy. What can be done here? What policy levers might need to be put in place in the USA? In the United States, uh, there are a number of policy levers that come into play, and you know, it, it's been it's been apparent from uh, some past experience that you know we have both federal and state level policies that support uh, the adoption of battery electric vehicles, for example, as well as hydrogen vehicles out in California. Uh, and and there's been plenty of evidence that shows if you take away those policies, you actually can see a drop in sales of those of those uh, vehicles. Um, and so these these types of incentives, uh, most of them are focused on how do you reduce the purchase cost, the effective net purchase cost to the uh, to the uh, buyer. Um, and so in the United States, there is a federal policy. Uh, uh, where you basically get a tax credit um, on a purchase of a battery electric vehicle or a plug-in hybrid vehicle. Um, and likewise, some states have uh, further uh, support for that. In, in addition to that, going to the OEM side, there's also um, a what we call CAFE standards in the United States, which says that the OEM has to achieve a certain level of uh, average fuel efficiency, fuel economy of their vehicles across everything that they sell. And what that type of policy does is it, 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 it forces them to have a mix of vehicles, uh, some of them which are uh, below that standard and some of them are above that standard. And uh, by having electric vehicles in the fleet, that substantially uh, helps them hit those particular targets. So what it comes down to is that 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 OEM has to either manufacture and sell enough of these high efficiency vehicles and battery vehicles to hit its target, or if they don't, they have to then buy credits from a company that, uh, like Tesla that only has battery electric vehicles and has an excess uh, of, 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 of credits. Uh, and so basically these OEMs have to make a decision on, okay, are they gonna be in the OEM, are, are they going to be in the electric vehicle uh, business in the future and how do they get there? And uh, they can afford to some extent to subsidize the sale of, of those battery electric vehicles into the market because either they cross subsidize within their own manufactured fleet or they're going to have to basically subsidize Tesla. And so uh, it seems clear that uh, uh, you're better off in the long term subsidizing your own build out of battery electric vehicle technology versus subsidizing Tesla if that's your competition. Randall, how do you see the effect of Biden-Harris administration on the EV landscape in the USA? Do you think we will see policies that will enable the transition to EVs soon? 
the Biden-Harris administration is uh, definitely uh, moving to policies that will further accelerate the adoption of battery electric vehicle technologies. And this is on multiple fronts. They're, they're expected to strengthen the CAFE standards, but also their decision to, their commitment to uh, electrify the uh, federal fleet is very important because in doing so, you're driving up the production volumes. And by driving up production volumes, you're effectively reducing the cost per unit. Uh, and that helps reduce the cost for everybody. And also by, by putting out a larger fleet of electric vehicles, it, it creates a better and bigger infrastructure uh, network effect for uh, electric vehicle charging. In addition, the administration is planning to uh, help further build out that uh, recharging infrastructure to support that. So there are many, uh, cylinders on which uh, the uh, Biden-Harris uh, administration is pushing to uh, that will further accelerate this electrification drive. Yeah, exactly. So how is it in the MENA, Rubal? How is the enabling environment there? Are we falling a bit behind in comparison to USA? And what more needs to be done? So in terms of policies, um, Saudi Arabia, based on my understanding, is uh, leading the uh, efforts in the policy landscape through their uh, supply side policy called the Corporate Average Fuel Economy Standards, which are very really similar to the U.S. CAFE standards, which Randy was just talking about. And through that policy, the um, Saudi Energy Efficiency Center has set up uh, targets for automakers to meet on an annual basis to improve the new vehicle fleet fuel economy. And those targets uh, are technology neutral, but the rate at which they have been set, which is around a 3 to 4% uh, annual improvement, it does encourage automakers to sell more fuel-efficient vehicles uh, or higher fuel economy vehicles. Um, and given that the targets keep increasing annually, uh, at some point it makes uh, a lot more sense for the automakers to start selling plug-in electric vehicles because they have you know, much higher fuel economy compared to internal combustion engine vehicles. So it's a technology-neutral policy uh, that Saudi Arabia implemented starting from 2016 onwards. Um, and we have standards set out until 2023. Uh, apart from this supply side policy, other uh, policies, especially demand side policies, have been in place um, in you know, most of the other uh, economies, such as US, China, um, even India. Uh, but they haven't been picked up so much in the, in the MENA region. And um, Primarily because although, you know, these are demand side policies in particular, you know, you set up incentives for consumers to purchase uh, these plug-in electric vehicles. You offer them uh, upfront incentives in the form of either uh, rebates or uh, income tax credits, like Randy was mentioning. But at the end of the day, you know, the uh, automaker usually adjusts its prices um, so as to be able to... Uh, recover, you know, their investments. So, for example, if the uh, incentive in the U.S. Uh, is roughly around seventy-five hundred dollars, uh, the the federal incentive and state incentive is roughly around twenty-five hundred dollars. More often than not, you see that the automakers set prices, um, which are, you know, uh, an additional ten thousand um, dollars compared to a similar size internal combustion uh, engine vehicle. And because they are, they are recovering their investment on it, and 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 as soon as you know these incentives are taken away, for example, it happened for the case of Tesla, uh, because U.S. has this uh, cap uh, that once the 200,000th vehicle is sold by the manufacturer, uh, they will not get any more um, 
no consumer buying a vehicle from that manufacturer will get any income tax credit. So as soon as the uh, 200,000th mark was hit for Tesla, and you know there were some phase out uh, months, uh, Tesla offered, started offering 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 dollar um, uh, reductions in its prices. Um, and and so it's it's sensible that you know the automakers would keep the prices higher uh, when they see uh, subsidies or incentives being offered by the the government. And you know while these are demand side policies to encourage consumers to adopt, at the same time these are also uh, you know uh, they also contribute to uh, in one sense um, uh, help uh, the countries meet their industrial uh, targets. These are also uh, you know uh, industrial policy in one sense. And because MENA, in MENA region, there is no manufacturing of uh, plug-in electric vehicles uh, that takes place. Um, so in one sense, you know, these if they offer incentives, it'll not, it will more often than not go in the pockets of these uh, automakers, um, which are all uh, outside the MENA region. Um, so for that, maybe for that reason, I'm, I'm not a policymaker, of course. Uh, we haven't seen much demand-side incentives being offered. And... Perhaps uh, it might be tricky for them to incentivize uh, adoption through these demands and incentives until uh, local manufacturing starts in the MENA region. So we've touched upon policy at the moment, but let's move to the life cycle of those vehicles, specifically the life cycle emissions of those different new energy vehicles in both regions. Are there any estimations at the moment? Are those really considered to be green vehicles? And if so, how green are they? I believe this is a bit controversial and debatable as it all depends on where the electricity is coming from. So give us a little bit of an insight on that. Within the United States, the uh, level of carbon emissions regarding uh, electric uh, supply is very different from location to location. So in all parts of the United States, driving a electric vehicle is less carbon intensive than driving a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. But in some parts of the United States today, uh, you're better off driving a hybrid gasoline-powered vehicle than driving a battery electric vehicle, uh, because in a particular region of the country, uh, the electricity is made uh, predominantly by coal, from coal. And so as you look at electric supply, you have to recognize, okay, some, some electricity is made uh, using coal, some is made using uh, uh, natural gas, uh, hydro, uh, solar, wind, nuclear. And so each of these has a different CO2 footprint. Now, keep in mind that even if today uh, you're driving a vehicle and you're using electricity that's uh, somewhat carbon intensive, as I said, you're better off than driving a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. But over the life of that vehicle, 14 years or more, that electricity supply will be further decarbonized because certainly the United States and many other parts of the world are moving quite aggressively to decarbonize the electricity supply. Keep in mind that of the entire economy, electricity is actually the easiest part of the economy to decarbonize. And so that's, that's one of the f- fastest moving segments to decarbonize. And so as you decide to build out and deploy electric vehicles or other vehicles, hydrogen and so forth, you have to keep in mind that it's not a static situation. The electricity supply will become greener over time. And since your asset, you're buying the car, 
is going to last 14 or more years, you have to recognize that the benefit will, will continue to improve, the environmental benefit will continue to improve over time. So yeah, I, I, I kind of agree both with uh, Dana and Randy. Um, so yeah, it used to be debatable whether these vehicles are green or not. But like Randy was saying, uh, going forward, uh, you know, these vehicles, when they're bought, they stay on the road for 14 to 15 years. Um, and most countries have plans to uh, clean up their electricity grid as well. Um, so it's perhaps not going to be as debatable, debatable going forward as it used to be in the past, because uh, most countries have policies in place to clean up the electricity grid, which, like Andy said, is a lot easier to clean compared to actually the transport sector. Um, so uh, going forward, the the, uh, the, prom the zero reductions promised by vehicle electrification are perhaps going to start being realized. Uh, that being said, the manufacturing component of it is perhaps something um, which might be difficult to uh, clean up as quickly as it will be to clean up the electricity used to drive the car. But again, even, even on the manufacturing side, you know, based on what I understand, 50% of the zero emissions uh, involved in the manufacturing uh, come from the uh, energy used, which more often than not is electricity. And again, so there is good scope for improving uh, or reducing the zero emissions from the manufacturing side as well. And even the MENA region uh, is quite a lot at the forefront of cleaning up our electricity uh, grid. So, you know, it, it is almost at par with the U.S. and other major economies of the world when it comes to the renewable energy uh, investments. And so even in the MENA region, it will not be a surprise that the uh, zero emissions, the combined overall life cycle emissions, um, at least the upstream and the uh, vehicle use emissions will go down uh, for plug-in electric vehicles and be comparable, favorably comparable to, uh, to internal combustion. Thank you so much for both of you for answering those questions in a very detailed and informative way, for teaching us all about alternative vehicles in depth. It saddens me that we have reached to the end of this episode. Thank you all for tuning in today's episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. This episode is part of the Clean Energy Business Council's CEBC MENA podcast, which aims to promote clean energy projects, initiatives, and leaders, and to raise awareness around climate change, sustainable finance, energy efficiency, sustainable mobility, challenges, and issues facing women in the clean energy sector in the MENA region. This episode is part of the second season that will focus on the future of mobility. Future episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. This episode's partner is the MIT Energy Initiative, MIT's hub for energy research, education, and outreach. This episode's sponsor is the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, Eurasia, and Europe. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. The Holling Center Initiative on Resource Resiliency aims to foster cooperative solutions to sustainable development. 
Dialogues focus on issues of water, energy, food, and health. To learn more, visit hollingcenter.org.